Let's read Titus chapter 2 together. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for a blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Well, two, chapter 2 and 3, there's a lot of exhortation, and I think what I'll do is... Instead of doing it in order of verse verse by verse, I'm going to do it in order of his argument or his reasoning. And so to start, chapter 2, we just read this long list of exhortations to basically every individual, whether you're an older woman, younger woman, older man, younger man, that covers everybody, um, how we should act and how we sh- our attitude. Rather than starting there, I thought we should start where he starts in terms of reasoning because all these things he says, he gives a reason. Well, why? Why do we do this? Why are these exhortations there? What's the basis for them? And as we've talked about already throughout the whole book of Titus, every chapter, the ground or the reason behind what he's saying is the basics, which is who is God and what is the gospel? How can we be right with God? And so that's what he says here at the end of this list of exhortations in chapter 2. And then he does the same thing again in chapter 3. He starts in really in verse uh, 10, at the very end of verse 10, where he says about slaves or bondservants that they shouldn't steal. He says at the very end of that, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And then through the end, he's saying why. Why all these exhortations? What's the reasoning for it? And so, we'll go over the specifics another week, but on, in terms of the exhortations. But this week, I just want to cover what, how do we view these exhortations? What's our motive? What's driving us when we hear these? Um, to obey in our life and with our kids in the church everything. How do we view these? And so I'm going to start by saying the reasons we're not pursuing these things. So 
I'm going to start with the negative. The first reason, um, when you hear these lists of commands, one reason we're not trying to fulfill these, trying to obey these, is we're not trying to save ourselves. We're not trying to justify ourselves. Where these lists of commands are not a list that you jump through a hoop so that way you can become a Christian. That is not what it's saying. And it's very clear um, a couple different places here in chapter 2 and then again in chapter 3. Let's look at a couple of them. Even in verse 10 where he talks to slaves at the end of verse 10, not to steal so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That's a pretty radical statement. He's saying don't be this person that steals because that doesn't fit with the doctrine of God and it doesn't adorn it well. It doesn't beautify the gospel. That's pretty striking, really. He doesn't say, don't steal or you're not a Christian. He says, you're going to be a bad witness if you steal. Look at the next couple verses here. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. So let's stop right there. Salvation has appeared. And what's that salvation like? It doesn't say that we renounce ungodliness so we can be saved. He's saying that once we're saved, we've been, we are trained. That trains us to renounce ungodliness. It's opposite order. Uh, let's keep going. Waiting for our, um, verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So it puts the action on Jesus. Jesus is the one who has redeemed us from our sins and from lawlessness. It's not our actions, it's not us, and it's not that he came to see who would be his people by who would follow the commands. It's the opposite. He came to purchase a lawless people and through his redemption. He's the one that purchased us, not us by our actions. And then jump to chapter 3. There's a really clear section here in chapter 3 saying all the same things. Verse 5. Let's start in verse verse 4, 3, 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. We're not saved because we're doing righteous works. We don't earn it. We don't make ourselves the people of God. It's Christ who redeemed us by his blood. And so when we hear these lists of exhortations of commands, it's what it's not saying is that we do these to become Christians. It's just the opposite. It's that we've been saved. We're not justified by our works. We're justified by Christ. We're not redeemed by, uh, by what we do, but by who, what Christ did. This is really, really important. This is a huge deal. Because what we said throughout this series is that the church is supposed to be a place where God and the gospel are preached and where his words obeyed. Um, we talked about that in, in chapter 1. But this is a big deal because this is 
the gospel. This is touching the gospel. This is a false gospel. If you believe that you're saved by your works. And it's, you know, started long ago, you know. Uh, people were trying to work their way to be right with God. Uh, and it still is today. And the Reformation, you know, largely was fought on this particular key point of justification. Uh, I'm going to read you a couple quotes here. It's helpful just to be really, really clear on the gospel and in history. I mean, the fact that we're here today in a church that is Protestant is a result of this struggle to keep the gospel pure and to have a church that teaches the gospel of salvation apart from works. So I'll give you a couple of quotes here. These are, these are quotes uh, from the Catholic Church. Um, the first is from a, the Council of Trent, which was basically a reaction to teaching that, that we're saved by what Jesus did and not by works. And so this is false on what I'm about to read, but it's an example of getting the, this backwards from Scripture, of trying to keep yourself saved by your works. So here, here's a quote from the Council of Trent. This is Canon 24. It's helpful to have these in mind, especially if you're reaching out to Catholic people. Um, a lot of times they won't know even what the Catholic Church teaches. Um, and so a lot of times you'll have to either quote it to them or know where it is so you can re- you know share the gospel with them. Um, but here's what Council of Trent, Canon 24 says. If anyone says that justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through works, but that those works are merely fruits and signs of justification obtained, not the cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. Okay, so it's kind of flowery language, but basically it says very clearly, if you believe that your works are merely fruits and signs of justification obtained, not the cause of its increase, let him be anathema, which anathema means cursed. So it means if you believe that your good works are just an overflow of what Jesus has done in your life, they're not actually increasing your justification, maintaining your justification, then you're cursed. Um, It's a very strong word, they're cursed. And, you know, this is kind of the way I like to reach out when I talk to Catholics about this particular thing, I'll say, you know, there's a verse in Romans that's interesting because this verse says cursed. And there's a verse in Romans, and I'll usually ask them, how do you think this would, how do you think this verse might be finished in the Bible? Blessed is the man to whom God counts righteousness. And I'll ask them, do you think it's with his works or apart from his works? Um, and, the, you know, Romans says, blessed is the man to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. God counts him righteous apart. God calls him blessed. The Council of Trent calls him cursed. It's a quite a stark contrast. It's interesting that they use that word anathema there. I'll give you another quote here that's also really clear. This one's from the Catholic Catechism. This is paragraph, I don't know if they call it paragraph or verse, but paragraph 20, 27. This is a section on justification. No one can merit the initial grace which is at the origin of conversion. Moved by the Holy Spirit, we can merit for ourselves and for others all the graces needed to obtain eternal life 
as well as necessary temporal goods. So they're, they're saying that you maintain your salvation. Moved by the Holy Spirit, we can merit for ourselves and for others all the graces needed to attain eternal life. That's not grace, right? The you know Romans says very clearly that if it's by grace, it's no longer by works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. That's the opposite of what this is saying. It's saying that Jesus, sure, Jesus died for your sins, but then you maintain that justification by your continued good deeds. And you can lose it. It's very scary and very important. And so, just kind of a little history lesson, but also present day. I mean, this is, this is a reality of what is being taught all over the world. Um, and it's false. That we're, when, when we read these lists of exhortations, we're not trying to earn our salvation. We're not trying to maintain our salvation. That Jesus died to cover all our sins. A couple more reasons when we read these lists, why what we're not doing, what they're teaching us, uh, what, what we can learn from this. They're not teaching that uh, the church is a place for perfect people. Just the fact that this verse is in here, that this whole list is in here, at the, even at the beginning of Titus chapter 2, it says, As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then he gives all these exhortations. Well, why are these in here? Because the church is a place where there's imperfect people. And he's saying exhort them to grow in these ways, to grow in these areas. And we see it throughout the Bible. Uh, letters to the Corinthians, letters to the Colossians, you know, all these letters we have in the Bible are to churches, real churches, that are imperfect. There's sin issues. There's doctrinal issues. And so when we read through these lists, we're not saying this is a place where everybody has all this exactly right. This is a place where we're wanting to grow. And that's a big difference. We're wanting to grow in these areas, not we've arrived as a church. And then the third thing is very closely related to that, but it's a slightly different. That means that Christians, when we read these lists, this is not teaching that Christians can be perfect and sinless. Um, obvi that's obvious if you think about what the point we just made as a church, but the church is made up of individuals, right? And so it's true corporately, but it's also true to us individually. None of us are perfect. None of us have all these perfectly laid out in our lives. You know, First John says, if anyone says he has no sin, he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. And so we all have room we can grow. Um, we all want to grow if we're Christians in these areas, but we're not perfect. And we don't want to expect something that the Bible's not teaching. And it can lead to a lot of confusion, you know. The Bible's very clear that, you know, once we're saved by Christ, it leads us to holiness, and we're changed by the Spirit. But it doesn't mean we're perfect. Uh, it doesn't mean we get there. Even maturity doesn't happen instantly. And it's, it's important, you know, as you look back through history, if you have a view that, you know, Christians um, very quickly meet all these requirements, um, and they, maturity comes very quick, and, it, and people maintain it uh, all perfectly, you're going to be very discouraged looking back through history. There's a lot, and through the Bible, there's a lot of people who mess up, who sin, and have serious and deep problems, and they're still Christians.
And it's important to know that. Luther, you know, even we just went over justification um, and the Reformation. The Reformers had a lot of problems still. They weren't perfect. There were sins, big sins, that were, you you know, quotes, I'm not going to read because they're kind of discouraging, but quotes that you can read that are very discouraging. It's like, how could a Christian say this, you know? Um, But the reality is Christians are imperfect people who have been saved by Jesus and aren't perfect yet, but we're trusting in him and we're growing. Um, So those are the things that this list is not saying. It's When you read the commands in the New Testament, they're not commands to save you. They're not teaching that everyone to come here needs to have them all figured out. And they're not teaching that everyone who's a Christian uh, will be sinless. And in fact, we can't be. Uh, until we're until we're redeemed, but we can grow in holiness day by day. So let's move from the negatives. Okay, what are these exhortations? They're not teaching. Now let's move to what they are. What they are teaching. What is the ground for this? How do we fulfill these? If what's the motive for this, and what's the power behind these exhortations? If um, all, you know, we just covered all the negatives. What are the positives? The first ground I want to talk about is is found at the end, which we already just briefly covered of in end of that section on slaves, that we might adorn the doctrine of God. It says God our Savior. Uh that's the end of chapter uh sorry, end of verse ten. Not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The first reason we want to pursue these things is that we are presenting a picture of what the gospel looks like to the world. And we want to present a picture that is true, um, that is accurate, and that doesn't contradict the gospel. You know, I thought of an illustration that kind of works in the first point and then this point as well. kind of reminds me of being a teacher. So when you're a teacher, the way they do salaries is it's purely based on years and education. So basically, you get a small raise if you have like your master's or whatever. But other than that, it's all based on years. It's not based on how good a job you do. So your salary's locked in, and they basically never fire anyone, ever. You know, it's like you would have to do something really, really, really bad. Um, and even then, they would have to go through this long process to fire you. And... So anyways, all that is to say, it's not based on merit, right? And so what happens is, the boss will come around and say, well, we've got all these things that need to get done. Who wants to do it? And your job is basically secure. You know, um, you don't have to do it. You can just say no. You can say no to all of it. And, but there are things that have to get done. And you don't get any brownie points. Um, even the other teachers might actually look down on you if you take too many of them because you're kind of making them look bad. So that's kind of like salvation, right? It's like we're saved by Jesus. Do you, are all these good works you know, earning you anything? No, they're not saving you. Well, then why would you want to do it? Well, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, if you just want to do good, I mean, you want good for the kids. You might say, oh, you know, I want these things to be well done. I want... I, I want to help the kids out, and so I'll, I'll take I'll take over these things. 
but you don't get anything extra out of it. You're not earning anything. Um, that's kind of like, you know, the Christian life. You're not trying to get something more. You're not trying to be more justified. You are simply working out uh, these new desires that God has put in you. And as you do that in your life, that's a good testimony of the gospel, right? To people, the people around you. And like with teaching, it's like you, as you want to do a good job, you want to pour yourself out for the kids, you're not getting anything. That's a good picture of the gospel for people. It's like you love people, you're pouring yourself out, and you're not looking to get something back. You're just wanting to do good. And that's a picture of Jesus, right? Jesus came to save us, to save people that didn't deserve it, not because he was getting a, a whole lot out of, uh, out of it. Um, it wasn't that he came to get the best people or anything like that. He came to save sinners. And here he is um, pouring out his life for us, even when we don't reciprocate or when we don't, uh, when we hated him. So you can see how as we pour our lives out for others, um, it's a picture of the gospel. We're adorning the gospel. We're not contradicting it by the way we're living. What else? What other motives do we have? Well, we have, we have a new hope. Look, I want you to look here at the end of chapter 2 again, where it says... Let's just start in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's stop right there. We've got this new hope. We're, we've got a new hope, and I won't go into this too much because I think we're going to have a whole message on it later about looking forward to meeting Jesus, but we have a new desire. We're not pursuing sin anymore. We're pursuing Jesus. That's what you know. repentance is. We, we were pursuing all these things for ourselves, and we realized, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to pursue God. I want to know God. And we've got a new hope of meeting him, of being with him, of being like him. And as we look to him, as we look forward to meeting him, uh, in a place where there's no sin, we don't run into sin. We pursue what it's going to be like in heaven, right? We're not pursuing sin. We're pursuing Christ, pursuing him, uh, the way he was, imitating him, and what it's going to be like when we're going to be with him. This is tied into another point that is the motive for why we want to follow these exhortations. We have a new value. Look at Notice the phrase, great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have a great God. What's he like? He's holy. He was sinless. And so when we see how good he was to us, how good he was just in general in his life, we want to pursue that. The things we used to value, we don't value anymore. The things that you know gave us joy in our life that we were living for, idols, they took a back seat to Jesus. We saw that he was better than all that. And so we pursue holiness because we pursue Jesus. And we value him. One more thing. Two more things here. Notice what it says about how he redeemed us. 
He redeemed us, this is verse 14, from all lawlessness. He redeemed us from all lawlessness. This is presenting the picture of you're a slave to sin, right? Redeem is purchasing someone out. And we were slaves to sin. We were bound by sin. We were living in sin. We loved our sin. And we couldn't free ourselves from our sin. And then Jesus came to free us by his blood on the cross. And he purchased us by that blood and freed us. Why would we want to run back into the sin that we just got freed from, that we were slaves to, that we've been purchased out of? That doesn't make sense. Romans talks about that. Um, let's read that. I'll read that verse here. What then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Let not sin, I'm skipping around a little bit, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but pre- present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That's Romans 6. But basically the idea is, if we were redeemed out of our sin, why would we want to run back right into it? If God purchased us from that slavery, why would we want to run back and put the cuffs back on? We want to pursue Christ. We have this new master. And so that's the motive that we're, when we pursue holiness, we're pursuing Jesus. And it doesn't make sense to run back into our sin that we just got freed from. One more motive here that's from these verses is we have this new identity. We have a new identity. And that's what it says here right at the end, that Christ came to purchase, redeem us, from all lawlessness, this is verse 14 again, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We've got a new identity now. We're God's people. We're his children. That's pretty amazing. That's quite a motive to pursue holiness. Um, we are, to those around us, it kind of ties back into the very first point of adorning the gospel. To those around us, we're a picture of what it means to be the people of God. And not only that, we don't want to contradict in our actions what, who we are in our identity. It's pretty amazing, really, that this is one of the motives that we have for holiness. And it's pretty shocking when you see it. In 1 Corinthians, there's this pretty crazy passage where he appeals to this when you would think he, he wouldn't, really. Uh, he says, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So he's writing this letter to the Corinthians, and there's these people going to prostitutes. What do you think he's going to say as the motive like, to stop doing that, that this isn't good? Listen to what he says. He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So here he hears that these people are sinning, you know, going to prostitutes, and he gives, as their motive to quit, these last two things we just talked about. One, they've been bought with a price. You were purchased. Don't run back to that. Jesus died for you. And then second, their identity. They're new. They're a people of God. They're the temple. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so he's saying, this isn't 
fitting for that. This isn't fitting for the people of God. And it's pretty surprising, really, that that's his reasoning. That's what he's calling out for them to run out of this sin. That's pretty amazing, really. The only illustration that I can think of that really gets this idea of living out this identity that you already have, I've already used before, but I'll just use it again because I can't think of it. I can't think of any others, but um, when Truman became president, it was, you know, it was because Roosevelt died. And then he was going to be reelected. Uh, he was going to run for election, but he actually told Eisenhower, who was a general in World War II, that he would run as his vice president. Like, if you'll run for president, I'll be your vice president, uh, which is pretty interesting that he would do that, you know, say, like, I'll be your vice president. Um, but Eisenhower didn't want to, so Truman ran again as for president and, he, and won. But anyways, later on, both parties were actually wanting Eisenhower to be their presidential candidate, Democrat and Republican, which is pretty amazing. And he could have chosen whichever one he wanted. And he still said no, he didn't want to be president. Well, then, without his knowledge, they threw this big rally, Eisenhower for president, in California. And they had all these, like, movie stars come out, and, like, it was like a big rah-rah thing. You can imagine, like, Eisenhower for president, and everyone's cheering, and they're talking about how Eisenhower should be our president. And he's over in Europe. Uh, he's, he's stationed over in Europe. He's still in the military. And somebody takes this, they filmed it, and took this over to him, and he didn't want to be president. And he didn't want to run for president, but they threw this rally, and they showed him the film. And his response was basically he broke down weeping. And the reason he did was he said he realized that to everyone around that he was the image of the World War II generation. And that he realized that I embody all these soldiers that died and the ones that lived and fought for our freedom. Like, I'm the image of that to the world. And he just felt such a weight on his shoulders that he broke down crying. And he also realized he needed to go ahead and run for president. Um, but that's the only time, that's the only illustration I can think of where, you're, where somebody is stepping into an identity that they already have and they're living it out. And that's like us for Christians. We are the people of God. If you're covered by Jesus' blood, you are the people of God. You are new. You do have a, the Holy Spirit within you. You do, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And you may not be living like it. You may be living under that. But just like Eisenhower saw, like, wow, this is real, and, and this is how people perceive me, and this is, a, this is also a high calling and high responsibility. I want to step into that, who I already am. Uh, that's the same for you. You're the people of God. If you're covered by Jesus' blood, you're trusting him, you are the people of God. Now step into that. Realize that you do have the Holy Spirit within you. You are the temple of God. You are one of the people of God. And so live that out accordingly to the world, but also just even just internal consistency. So finally, the last point I want to make, this is really, really important, this final point. So if this first part was kind of boring, um, like tune back in here for 10 minutes. This is really, really important because the final thing that when we read this list is what is the power that enables us to fall through on this? Like, we're going to go through, you know, this whole list of exhortations, you know, in a couple of weeks, you know, through the next couple of weeks. How do we do it, you know? What is the power that, that will enable us to be a church and to be an individual that follows through on these exhortations, these commands from God? It's really, really important. And I'm going to reread these verses from Titus 3, 
and listen for what you think this section is saying. What's the new power? What is the power? So we talked about having a new hope, new values, a new identity, and we also have a new power that enables us to fall through on these. Titus 3, 4 through 7. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The new power is our new nature, the new spirit within us, God's spirit. That's what gives us the power to do these things. Not our willpower, because we decided we're, we're going to, you know, buckle our bootstraps, you know, and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and go on and do our best, which we are. But even that's not sufficient. We have to have a new power within us. Just like we talked about when we were slaves to sin, many, many times, I'm sure you have felt this where before you were a Christian, you had sin in your life, you felt guilty about it, you decided, I'm going to try harder. I remember coming to church over and over as a kid and having sin and feeling guilty and saying every week, I'd pray the same prayer to God, God, I'm going to try harder next week. That's what I would always pray. I was lost. I was like, I knew that I had sin, I knew I had guilt, but I couldn't free myself. And I tried and I tried and I tried and I failed. Well, I needed Jesus. <laughs> I needed the gospel. I needed to be washed by Jesus and empowered by Jesus. And, and that's what I wasn't trying to do. I was trying to save myself. And it was very frustrating. It was like this um, hamster wheel of success and failure of, oh, look, I made it a week, you know, and I'll suddenly I'm back in my sin. And I never got out because I didn't have the power to get out. I needed Jesus to come in. And that's what we have as Christians. Not only does Jesus forgive us of our sin, he washes us, he regenerates us. We're a new person with a new spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside us. A.B. Simpson has a really good quote and um, illustration of this. When he's talking about this idea of, okay, what do we do now? You know, We see these commands in the New Testament. We want to follow them. And he said it's, it's kind of like seeing a beautiful flower outside and thinking, wow, this is wonderful. This is something I want to imitate. And so somebody tries to paint the flower. Well, even the best painting in the world uh, doesn't smell like a flower. It doesn't grow. Uh, it doesn't move in the wind. And he said, but if you take a cutting from the flower and you plant it in soil, it'll sprout roots and grow a new flower that is exactly the same. It's of the same nature. It has, it has the petals. It really smells. It not only does it look the same, it in every way is the same because it has the actual nature of that first flower in the replica. And that's what we have, right? We could look at Jesus all day and try to imitate on our own, I want to be like Jesus, I want to be like Jesus, and we'll fail. But God put his very own nature in us, the Holy Spirit. He regenerates us, he changes us, he puts something brand new in us that was never there before. This love for God, this spirit of God, his, his self in us that we can be new. And that's the power that changes us. That's the reason we can fulfill these commands is the Holy Spirit, the new nature that God has given us in Jesus. And so we look to him. And what does that look like practically in our life? Because we want to live this out. Um, how do we live this out? 
Well, first off, you could just learn from my mistakes and realize if every week you're coming and you're saying, God, I want to try harder next week, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus comes in and saves you from your sin, not you save yourself. You need Jesus. If you've got sin in your life that you can't beat, well, you need Jesus. And what about if you already are a Christian? Um, you could know it in your mind and not be living it out practically. You know, you could say every time maybe you sin, you feel guilty, and then you say, I'm going to, you make a resolution. I'm going to do better next, and the next time I'm going to do this, this, and this. And you try and get your joy and your comfort from your performance instead of running to Christ and leaning in his grace, his forgiveness, and the new nature you have. So what might it look like when we fail to like implement this in our life? Well, we could just we could pray and lean on these things. You could like um, as we read some of these commands, you know. Uh, so for you know, for me, you know, one of some of the commands that I feel like I struggle with are the joy commands. It's like I really want to rejoice in the Lord and in all the good things God has, but um, my temperament and my tendency is to focus in on the negatives, you know, and uh, be brought down, I think, in a bad way, you know, wrong to wrong extent to the negatives. So what could I pray? I could pray, God, you've put your spirit within me. Would you help this joy that I know you've already placed by your spirit in my life to grow and to be more like you by your power? And then trust that he wants to and he'll help me. That's very different than trying to muster it up myself, trying to make a list of all the to-dos, which can be good, uh, but ultimately leaning in at the very base level on Christ and on who he is and what he's done, not on my effort. Um, Not that I'm not wanting to try, but that at the core and at the base of what I'm leaning in on, it's that new nature, God. Another example might be love. I mean, there's so many times where we could boil down basically this whole list of commands of, you know, exhortations to love. Love God and love others. There's so many times when we come into a situation, we don't feel love for the people involved. What can we do? We can just pray, God, I know you've put your spirit within me. I know that you love these people. Would you cause that to grow and blossom in me that I might love and would you do it miraculously? Um, we can grit our teeth and, and ball up our fists and try really hard to feel love for somebody um, and it just fall flat. But what we know that Christ want, does love them and wants us to help us. And so we can lean in on that and then rest and have peace. God, I know you want to help me and I know you've put the resources that I need w- within within my own heart and through your spirit. Your God himself is here with me. Uh, I know you're going to help me because you promised. Um, and then just rest in that and move forward. So we've got a lot to be thankful for as Christians. Thankful, Aren't we thankful that we're not working our way to heaven? Aren't we thankful that we're not maintaining our salvation by our good works? That would be so horrible. Uh, I, I can tell you stories about people I've talked to who were literally doing that. That was how they viewed their salvation, and they were miserable. It's horrible. Um, aren't we thankful that Christ has not left us alone, that he's here with us, he's given us the Holy Spirit inside of us so that we can move forward in faith to 
be more like him, to trust him, and to be a picture of him to the world. So let's pray together. Father, I just pray um, you'd help us in all these ways that it would be real in our own hearts, that we would really trust you day to day. Um, we don't want to just know these things in our mind. We want to lean on them in, tr- in faith every single day as we fail and as we want to be more like you. I pray you'd help us. Uh, thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to die. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit, Jesus. Um, Holy Spirit, thank you for being within us and bearing with us and helping us every day. And we just pray in all these, in every area where we're falling short, where we want to be more like you, I pray that it, you would cause that um, to blossom in our own hearts and lives, uh, who you are implanted within us. Um, have mercy on us. Help us. We're looking to you. Amen.